Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm Freddie. On today's New Statesman podcast, we're talking about what happened in the Northern Ireland local elections and why it's been yet another tough week for Rishi Sunak. We're going to devote a bit of time today to talking about the Northern Ireland local elections and what they might mean for the return of power sharing and Stormont. Quick recap of the results. Sinn Féin is now the largest party in local government, as well as in the Northern Ireland Assembly. And this is a change from 2019 when the DUP were. Party has won 144 seats up from the 105 councillors that it returned in 2019. DUP didn't lose any seats, but came second. The Centre Ground Alliance Party made 14 gains and is now the third largest party. And the SDLP and the UP, meanwhile, both lost around 20 seats. We're Joined today by Sam McBride, the Northern Ireland editor of the Belfast Telegraph. Sam, thank you for being with us. Not at all. We can come to a little bit later about what it might mean for power sharing, but can you just take us through, could you recap some of the results and give us your take on how you think the campaigns went? So this was an exceptionally dull campaign, but what came out of it was anything but dull. It was very dramatic. And there are really two big stories, I think, when you zoom out of this and look at what it means for Northern Ireland. The first is obviously that Sinn Féin had this extraordinary success. They are not just the biggest party in Northern Ireland. That happened for the first time last year in a Stormont Assembly election. That has happened now again to a greater extent in a council election. So they're still increasing their level of support. And that is of really significant, of really historic significance, because there has never been a nationalist party of any hue, the SDLP or Sinn Féin or the old nationalist party. And it would have been, it would really have been completely unthinkable for the old nationalist party in the early decades of Northern Ireland's existence to have thought that this was even vaguely possible for a nationalist party. Northern Ireland was a place whose borders were drawn to lock in a unionist majority, to lock in a Protestant majority. Those things were basically coterminous back in 1921. And so the idea that unionism of whatever shade would not win an election would have been unthinkable. But in some ways, Sinn Féin's victory here is not the biggest story, I think. I think that the biggest story is the overall decline in the unionist vote. So that's for all the unionist parties put together. And there is this rather comforting narrative that some unionists tell themselves after elections like this. And it goes like this. 
the pro-union unionist vote was split. There were too many unionist parties. We were all fighting each other, they say. And if only we could get together and have a single unionist party like we used to have back at the start of Northern Ireland, then we would be on top again. What this shows is that's not a pipe dream. There was, there was a combined unionist percentage of the seats. Unionism across all its parties won 53% of the seats in Northern Ireland Council elections in 1997, the year before the Good Friday Agreement. As recently as 2014, just nine years ago, they won 51.4% of the seats. So they were still winning a majority. In this election, they won just a fraction over 40% of the seats. So in nine years, they've gone down more than 11 percentage points. That's an extraordinary decline in a place like Northern Ireland, where sectarian attitudes, where tribal attitudes mean that change is normally glacial. Things don't happen like this dramatically. People are expected to vote a certain way because they feel that way in terms of their core identity. And so that is a really alarming thing for unionism and a heartening thing, I think, for nationalism. How much of that do you put down to just long-term changes? How much of the sort of decline in the unionist vote currently is because the DUP is refusing to to go into go back into power sharing after the Northern Ireland Protocol? Because I think that's one of the things Michelle O'Neill wants now, isn't it? The Sinn Féin vice president. Certainly the DUP staying out of Stormont and vetoing any sort of government for Northern Ireland whatsoever right now has hurt it with moderate unionist voters. There is no doubt about that. That is partly what explains the, the growth of the Centre Ground Alliance Party's vote. It's not the main reason for it, but it's part of the reason. But I think that when you go back and you look at this historically on a chart as to where the vote has started to collapse, it's much starker than that. And it goes back to Brexit. It's as simple as that. 2014 was two years before Brexit or prior to the vote for Brexit. And it's from that point where things start to really unravel for unionism. Nationalism was moribund at that point. Actually, it was going backwards. Nationalism was losing seats. And from that point, what had been this really delicate equilibrium where there there was no flag waving from nationalists for the union. They weren't in any way enthusiastic about being British in any sort of cultural sense. And they may well have wanted to have Irish unity at some point but not quite now, not just yet, and not for the foreseeable future. And that was transformed by Brexit. Suddenly they felt that this was a hostile state towards them. It was doing things against their will that that they had voted in Northern Ireland and there had been a clear majority in Northern Ireland for Remain. But because Northern Ireland was part of the union, it had to leave. And so that, I think, is the big strategic mistake for unionism. And to this day, they have not recovered from that. Sam, you made a really interesting point about this debate within unionism in the past few years about coalescing around a single party and trying to make electoral gains from that. One of the things that seems to happen in the results that actually that happened on the nationalist side. Do you think you saw, for instance, Sinn Féin taking some of those nationalist votes in the SDLP? Is it actually happening on the other side? So I think that actually it's more stark than that. It's happening on both sides in some ways yeah. by default. So what we're seeing is the emergence of a three-party system in Northern Ireland with a smattering of tinier parties that are increasingly shrinking on the margins, on the fringes of our politics in Northern Ireland. So it's about Sinn Féin being the dominant nationalist party, the DUP being the even more dominant within unionism, unionist party, and Alliance being the dominant centrist party. That is the big story here. And I think that if you look at this 10, 15, 20 years into the future, there are actually 
quite significant risks for both nationalism and unionism of having their fortunes tied up in a single party. Sinn Féin, because of its past support for the IRA violence, and um, to, to this day, they will glorify the people who carried out that violence. That repels a very significant segment of Northern Ireland society, which otherwise might be open to thinking of Irish unity. Likewise, the really gross sectarianism of some DUP members and all sorts of other aspects of Paisleyite history mean that the DUP will never reach all the people in Northern Ireland who are pro-union. And I think we see with the SNP, we have seen in other places, the danger for a movement of being tied almost exclusively to a single party. Parties go up and parties go down in a democracy. What has gone up in this election sometime will come down. And I think the question for the ideology is what does that mean for it? Is it strong enough to withstand that? Is there a greater diversity within the civic aspect of unionism and nationalism to be able to take that on the chin? Or does that do it really serious damage at some future point? Obviously, one of the other success stories from the local elections was the growth of the alliance vote. So how do you, what do you think that means at this stage? I think if you go back to 1998 and to the time of the Good Friday Agreement, Alliance was a bit of a fringe player. It was at the talks. It was quite an important sort of backroom broker between the two sides. It was a sort of trusted centrist party which didn't take unionism or nationalism as its ideology, albeit it led more towards unionism at that point. But since then, the big story of how Northern Ireland politics has changed outside the growth of the DUP and Sinn Féin as parties within their blocks is the growth of this centrist bloc. It has really dramatically grown since 1998. And whereas Northern Ireland was once a unionist majority place, it is now a land of three minorities. So you've got roughly a 40-40-20 split. Unionism and nationalism, roughly around 40%, and centrist parties, roughly around 20%. They were a bit beneath that in this contest. They've been higher in other contests. But the real growth there, I think, for Alliance are mostly younger people who were born and maybe after the Good Friday Agreement, maybe before it, but people who have largely grown up in peace, who want something different, who are frustrated by the old tribal arguments about unity or union. They want something different. They want something better. Whatever happens in a border poll, they will decide that for themselves, but they don't need their political party to fight that every day in councils where they're more interested in things like bin collections. They're more interested in things like the environment. They're more interested in the basic functions of good government than they are in what flag is going to fly over Northern Ireland. Sam, yeah, just speaking to people in Westminster last week, many, the main way that people were seeing these elections is whether it would spur the DUP to get back into, back on side in Stormont. How do you think these elections have changed that equation? Many people were basically saying that the DUP is waiting for these local elections to pass before they went back in because they didn't want to, they didn't want to lose votes to their right and to other unionist parties. Do you think we've seen that? I think the DUP has come out and said they are going to wait for some budgetary changes before they even consider going back in. Where do you think we are in terms of Stormont now? This election, I think, from the DUP's perspective, is a vindication of staying out. So as I've said, it's been bad for unionism on that front, but it's been pretty good for the DUP. Their vote has actually gone up 
from last year. It's down slightly on the last council election, so it's not a it's not a perfect comparator. But in in comparison to the number of people and the um, the strict percentage of people who came out and voted for the DUP last year, they have come out in greater numbers to vote for the DUP in this election. The Liberal Ulster Unionist Party, which was giving a clearer alternative that was much more liberal than it has ever been in its history in this contest, was saying, get back into Stormont, let's sort the protocol, let's sort the Irish Sea border at some future point. They saw the greatest drop in their support among the Unionist Party. So that is something which I think some people in the DUP of a harder disposition are saying means that they should simply stay out. That's what their electorate want and give them what they want and keep going. And that's the safe option. Other people in the DUP are looking at this and thinking about it quite differently. They're starting to realise that being out of Stormont is better for Sinn Féin and better for nationalism than it is for the DUP. If Northern Ireland isn't working, and if the DUP can quite plausibly, quite reasonably be blamed for that because they're refusing to allow a government to be formed, that helps Sinn Féin. They can wash their hands of all the difficult decisions. They can say that all the cuts in schools and hospitals and some really difficult stuff that's going on in in the wider public sector in Northern Ireland is not their fault. The minute they go back into Stormont, their fingers are on those decisions. Their fingerprints are all over what's happening They may well and will do, and they will certainly, in those circumstances, blame the Tories. They'll say that they're not being sent a big enough check by the Treasury. They'll blame the DUP for having walked out and led to some of these problems. But at the very least, the blame starts to be shared. And that, I think, now increasingly is something that some people in the DUP are realising. So I think that there'll be a significant debate here. But I think at this point, I would still expect the DUP to be back in government, maybe by the autumn of this year, not necessarily sprinting back in. And the old familiar uh, ask from the DUP will be, get your checkbook out, Chancellor, give us <laughs> a lot of money, billions of pounds. And they've got considerable reason, I think, to expect that will be the case. And there's a real issue of moral hazard here because essentially the big problems in Northern Ireland's budget would not have received that influx of funding had the DUP stayed in. Having gone out, they're going to be rewarded for that. Sinn Féin were rewarded for that the last time they pulled down Stormont. And there is a pattern here that actually getting out of Stormont leads to the person who did that, securing a lot more money and then being able to take the credit for that with their voters. Whereas if they'd stayed in and taken the difficult decisions to either cut services or hike hike rates or bring in extra funding some other way, they would have maybe paid the price for that at the polls. I mean, one of the things that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson said, the DUP leader after the results, was that unionism needed to be doing better and winning more seats. But then it struck me as a bit of an illogical response. You need to be using power in somewhere to be winning seats, right? And I wanted to ask about, you've said that the nationalist votes in the ascendancy at the moment, but also that there's no immediate clamour for a border poll. But so what are Sinn Féin's short-term aims now to achieve nationalism and what do you think is actually achievable within the term that they've just won, within the terms rather at the assembly and within local government that they've won? If you look at the overall nationalist vote, it's gone up from 34% in 1997 to almost 40% in this contest. It's not a radical climb, it's not doubled or trebled or anything of that nature, but it is clear, steady growth. Since Brexit, it was not steady before that, it was going down before that, but since then, it is clearly going up as the unionist vote is falling. But it would be a mistake for anybody to look at these two lines on a graph and think that is the sum total of the people who are for or against Irish unity in a border poll. 
There are lots of people who are pro-Irish unity and who are not necessarily coming out to vote at all or are not voting for those parties. They might be voting for the Alliance Party. They might feel very much that at some future point there should be a united Ireland, but they don't feel the need to express that in every election. Likewise, and to a greater extent on the unionist side, there are a lot of people who are pro-union who are not voting for the unionist parties because they're either repelled by them or they're apathetic and they couldn't be bothered to come out to vote at all. I think that the big battle over the next 10 years is not so much about whether there's a united Ireland. There'll be lots of talk of that, particularly if Sinn Féin get into government in the Irish Republic. But I think the bigger battle, um, the much messier battle, is going to be about what Northern Ireland looks like and how it feels within the Union if there isn't a united Ireland. I was at the Belfast City Hall count last week. I was there as the ballot boxes were being opened, as the votes were being counted, people were milling around doing what they do at a count. And it really struck me that bastion, that old bastion of unionism, built by unionism, built for unionism for the most part, it looks and feels really mostly like it did in 1980 or 1960. There are stained glass windows to unionist heroes. There are lots of military and paraphernalia around that building. That increasingly is going to be the sort of battle that there's going to be. There is going to be a question about nationalist symbols, about emblems, about things that are symbolic that might not really change anything, certainly not in terms of sovereignty and not even in terms of how people live their lives. But in many cases, those things stir up emotions in Northern Ireland far more than whether taxes are going up or down, than whether bins are being collected, than the sort of stuff that you think people might care about. Actually, the stuff that tends to get people out to vote uh, is much more atavistic than that. And I think that's going to be a very significant debate over coming years. Yeah, so a cultural battle, if you like, a, a culture war of sorts. And I remember the rows over the Irish language legislation that took place before that. Sam, was that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. After the break, we'll talk about Rishi Sunak's tough week. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. It's available for both iPhone and Android. Just search New Statesman on the app or Google Play Store. We'll be right back. From The New Statesman comes audio long reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. The expensive house that sucked up a lifetime's wages became the savings account, the pension, the inheritance. That wealth is now beginning to dissolve. Featuring writing from our authors, including Will Dunn on the Great Housing Con, Why the Coming Crash Will Rewrite the Economy, Sophie McBain on what's behind the surge in adult ADHD diagnoses. It's not pure coincidence that ADHD diagnoses have risen alongside the internet's attention economy, a vast infrastructure that has been designed to capture and monetize people's focus. And Carl Uwe Knausgaard on why the novel still matters. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke once wrote that music could lift him up. Of course, there's nothing remarkable about that. And he then added, and put me down somewhere else. I recognise that quote so well, especially when it comes to literature. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So it's been another nightmare week for Rishi Sunak. It emerged his Home Secretary, Swella Braverman, was caught speeding and may have asked a civil servant to try and help her avoid points on her driving licence. He's once again at war with Boris Johnson. Former Prime Minister has been referred to the police over further alleged lockdown breaches. These are over a gathering at Chequers, which has allegedly taken place. And he blamed the Cabinet Office for sharing information, basically. But the real problem for Rishi Sunak, the, the real big deal here is the immigration statistics yeah. that have been published today which show large rise in net migration, contrary to what the Conservatives promised in their manifesto. You wrote today's morning call on, on the immigration stats. Do you want to take us through yeah, what so they show? 606,000 people have come in net in the year to September 2022. And there's three main groups, I think, and three main reasons that we've seen this massive increase. This is the highest figures that we've got on record. We've got the government's migration scheme, which is basically letting more people in to work in the NHS, social care and those sorts of things. We've also got the more transitory aspect of the Ukrainians coming, people fleeing the CCP in Hong Kong. And then we've also got a large number of students, which partly reflects the fact that many universities nowadays are basically dependent on foreign students coming in and paying higher fees. So many of those aspects are transitory in the fact that they will go down. We're not going to be letting in hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians every year. So we probably would expect that number to fall back next year. But it is highest on record, which is remarkable given that since 2010, the Conservative government have included in every single one of their manifestos the fact that they want to get immigration down. And we've obviously not seen that. I hadn't seen it before I came into the podcast today, but I imagine some Conservatives will be out this morning saying these figures are actually lower than what were predicted by the experts, which is absolutely right. They were expected to be around, what, 700 to 750,000, I think was the Home Office estimate at one point. So cling to that. But in, in reality, these are very high net migration figures. Yeah, they but finally I think, got their expectation management right. Yeah. <laughs> two weeks later. <laughs> yeah, two, two weeks after, yeah, definitely fluffing it up at the local elections. But I think it'd be very interesting to see how this row pans out, I think, because I wonder if post-Brexit, the country might be slightly more liberal about immigration generally. But I don't know what your view is in terms of just how bad it looks in the eyes of voters on in terms of this is breaking a manifesto yeah. promise, ultimately. Yeah. This is the big question because immigration was the key issue mm. in 2016 during the referendum. And then since then, we have seen the liberalisation of attitudes towards immigration. We've still got around just under half of people do want to see reductions in net migration. But when you ask them, OK, which groups of people do you actually want us to cut? They're less clear because that sort of reflects the fact that if you go, okay, do you do you want to let Ukrainians in? And yeah, yes, of course. Do you want to let these Hong Kongers in who are fle fleeing a democratic clampdown in Hong Kong? They go, yes. Nurses, yes. Students, yes. So it's a tricky sort of balance when the public polling doesn't suggest that they have a completely coherent view. And then in terms of the manifestos and the government's legitimacy on this issue. I think this is really interesting. We saw this in PMQs yesterday. Starmer, actually, just before he was cut off by the Speaker, he did say that today's migration figures represent uncontrolled migration, which is remarkable because the whole point about Brexit was trying to take back control over migration, leaving uh, free movement and allowing the government to set up their own migration regime. Now, if Starmer's trying to do that and try and frame it in that way, 
I think he's trying to tap into that that 2016 sentiment, the fact that people are generally more amenable to hire a migration if they feel it is controlled. That's the, that's the key point, yeah. I think, isn't it? So it's not necessarily that everyone in the country is against people coming here to work or us importing labour where it might be absolutely needed, for example, for the NHS. It's when they feel like decisions are being made and they're not in control of those decisions. So it, so the rhetoric is probably a comfort to, to voters rather than a, an absolute clear direction of where they expect every bit of policy policy making to go. I thought PMQs was really interesting because you don't see a Labour leader going studs up on immigration. It's very not on brand for the Labour Party as such. But they also had quite an interesting policy announcement which happened in, in PMQs, which kind of got into some of the detail of what some people think is wrong about immigration, I think, in that the Labour Party now wants to slash the 20% discount that's available to businesses on 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 some foreign labour. And I think that what the message that the Labour Party is trying to get across there, I think, is that is getting in, getting inside that fear that people have that immigration drags down wages and therefore is damaging the cost, is making the cost of living crisis worse for people in this country. So it's a kind of it was the Labour Party putting forward two kinds of messages at the same time. One, that they want very tough controls on immigration, but another, that they're comfortable with immigration, but also want to tell voters that they think that it should not affect the cost of living for people in this country, or wages rather, for the people in this country. So it's an interesting mix of messaging, yeah, I thought. I think, yeah, and the two things are compatible. It's very interesting where that debate has gone. Mm. That is something that Richard Tice of Reform has been making, have been saying for a very long time. People have always, on the right, people in UK, people on the right of the Conservative Party have been making this argument for years, and you've not yet seen it in the Labour Party. So I do think it does represent a much more, much harder line from Labour on immigration. I think Nigel Farage has just said this week that Labour now has the upper hand on migration, so it's endorsed by Nigel Farage. I'm not sure whether... <laughs> I'm not sure. They probably will actually like that because it's as a signal of what Labour is trying to do, is signal to voters how tough they were willing to be on immigration. But just back to that specific policy announcement. It's very interesting. I remember when... Keir Starmer was at the CBI in, back in November mm. and he made a speech that basically outlined this argument. He said to businesses, we're going to use the migration framework to restrict migration unless you invest in homegrown skills, unless you say, OK, we're going to train up local people so we don't have to rely on foreign labour coming in from overseas. And then at the time, I mean, I it was confusing. Is this just, again, more signalling or you're going to get some policy to back it up. I remember speaking to people at the time and they were very adamant that this was no, this was just the start of mm. Labour's move towards a new migration policy. And I think you're right, we did see that come to fruition in some sense yesterday with the policy announcement. Yeah, there was a little dig from Keir Starmer as well, which kind of just got inside of a little bit of the politics of it. He basically threw back the accusation that Rishi Sunak has been throwing at Keir Starmer for the last few months. And it was that you've broken your promise. Yeah. <laughs> you've broken your promise on immigration. And that's the BRICS, BRICS promises is something that you've seen conservatives throw at him for quite a while now, mm. relating to his leadership pledges, yeah. which, were, which he is very much moved away from since then. I think it's more unacceptable to people generally for a party to break a manifesto pledge mm. when they've been given the chance to govern rather than a leadership pledge that you made when speaking to very much to your own side. And I also think because of some of the promises that Keir Starmer has moved away from, it made it quite difficult for Rishi Sunak to, to throw, oh, Keir Starmer wants to return to free movement when the Conservatives at the same time are attacking him for moving away from his leadership pledge yeah. 
to return the country to having free movement. There was a, just an interesting little just change of dynamics happening at PMQs as well. I thought it's just become, it, it seems like Keir Starmer's having a good week most weeks now. I think so. I keep writing that. And it's just like, <laughs> to my surprise, Keir Starmer's had another great week. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there for this week. Thanks, Freddie. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Wearmouth, and my colleague, Freddie Hayward. On Monday, Zoe Grunewald speaks to Ryan Shorthouse from Bright Blue on what's gone wrong for the moderates in the Conservative Party. You can watch a video version of this podcast on our YouTube channel. And our producer today has been Adrian Bradley. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.